Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochilillo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cochilillo, and today we have Katrina Rasbold. She has written, well, we're kind of not sure about the count, but something like 36 books on all types of topics, everything from tarot to hexes and curses and candle magic and crafts and giving birth. (laughs) Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Gary. It's a pleasure. So it's quite a, I, I think when I found you, I was probably looking for somebody who wrote a book on tarot because I read tarot cards too. And, and I've well, really been very unlucky at getting uh, tarot authors to come on my show. That's a shame because it's a fascinating subject. I mean, I've been reading uh, personally for, I guess, 40 years now, professionally for 30 and I've been teaching it for around 20. And I, I'm always mesmerized by it still. It just never gets old. Right. Yeah, it's never the same. And, and like, like I know for me too, um, I started reading Tarot too, like I was like around 12 years old, something like that. And, and that's what opened the door for me for like all these other subjects. Oh, so um, Tarot is your gateway drug then? Yeah, yeah. You know, it got me into like the, um, you know, the golden dawn type of stuff and you know learning all these different correspondences and astrology and numerology and kabbalah and 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 all these you know different traditions that are actually they're all sort of contained in, in one deck of cards absolutely especially when you're back into the, some of the older decks there's so many layers there and so much thought put into each card and then you've got 78 opportunities to explore all of those concepts it's fantastic uh what deck do you usually use i have actually over a hundred decks and my go-to's are the morgan greer i use that quite a bit i've used morgan greer for oh about 30 years now i guess Mm -hmm. um i do enjoy the old pamela coleman smith drawings from the previous writer weight deck. And so all of the takes on that I, I use, there's another newer one called Tarot of the Illuminati that I use. And I've just talk about late to the game in the mm-hmm. last year I've started using Oracle cards. Yeah. I've just started messing around with Oracle cards a little bit, Oracle cards a little bit myself. I've always sort of gone back to the, the writer date, <laughs> the writer weight deck myself. It's usually the, the albino edition. That's a good one. It's, and, you know, I also just, uh, just got, there's a, a company called Siren Imports that does what's called the original tarot. And they did go back to the first that are in the public domain, Pamela Coleman Smith drawings. And they just digitally woke them up and they're really beautiful. So that's been what I've been going to. But I never really messed with Oracle decks much. I was always just a diehard tar- hard tarot person. Mm-hmm. And, the people in my shop started saying, no, man, you got to try this Oracle deck. And it was amazing the difference, whereas tarot is a discipline of learning the classic interpretations and then adding your layers onto them, digging deeper all the time. Oracle card is like this bizarre little zip file 
of intuitiveness that one word or one picture opens up. And so I've really enjoyed it. So I do a lot of Oracle work lately. Yeah. I have um, one Oracle deck that sort of focuses on um, sacred geometry that I've oh. been experimenting with and just trying to see the relationships between the colors and the shapes and using my intuition from there. One of the first Oracle decks I used, this was one I used maybe, well, I would say 25, 30 years ago. There used to be a fantastic metaphysical store down on Melrose in Southern California called the Bodhi Tree. And I went there and I found this bizarre deck. It was in a little velvet pouch. It had no instructions. It was called the Reflection Tarot or the Reflection Deck. And there is another reflection deck that's come out since then. It's nothing like it. But this was all pastel swirls with one word. And I got so much out of that deck. And when you mentioned sacred geometry, I immediately thought of that deck because of the way that the shapes interplayed with one another. It was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I've definitely become sort of particularly fond of, of different mandalas and stuff like that. Um, it's just There's amazing. There's a deck you would enjoy called Sea of Calm. It's actually out of print right now, but it's a, an entirely a Mandela deck. It's very busy It's as far as communicative. Mm -hmm. And I think you would enjoy that. So check out Sea of Calm. It's, it's beautiful. Wow. I will have to check that out. Yeah. Um, so I've been going through this list of books that you've written, mm -hmm. and it looks like you have found a way to basically incorporate spirituality into almost every aspect of your life. That's kind of what I get when I'm going through this list of books. You know, my husband and I run this shop here in, in Shingle Springs, California, and it's all about everything we do. He wrote the, some of the first books with me is about energy. And because our belief is kind of scientific based, that everything regarding witchcraft or magic or energy movement is about getting down to that subatomic level where everything's moving and everything's mutable and you have all of this space where you can change anything. And so that really does translate out to just about any part of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and with, with the scientific belief, which, which I, I, I am totally on board with, you know, especially now when I started reading about um, some more of the quantum theory and how um, consciousness affects, you know, subatomic particles. And, and to me, that's like, you know, the fundamentals of magic. Absolutely so. And then we, we get into the further aspect of the observable and how those particles move differently when we are observing them. And that means that we are an important component to what's happening with that magic. I mean, sure, we could say magic has gone on since the dawn of time. It was a, a concert that we really stepped into to play our instruments along with in the symphony. But it's different when we're there. It's different when we're observing it. And that's what gives me a sense of empowerment is I am a part of this. This is uh, my world too. I'm not just, I'm not just seeing it, I'm participating but I'm also not just a non-consequential part or aspect. Right. So, so you see yourself more as a co-creator. I guess you could say that, but again, it's, 
you're a co-creator and I hate to keep coming back to this metaphor, but if there is a concert in process and you step in to play your instrument, you know, you're not necessarily solo. You're not necessarily the most important part of that concert, but the whole sound changes because you're there. Right. Interesting. Um, I never thought of that analogy myself and I should have because I'm a musician. And, well, and, leave the music continues, but it's forever different. Yeah. And, and also, um, one of the things that also comes up, you know, when we're talking about music, um, how much of a part of magic do you think has to do with sound and vibration? It's interesting you ask that because that's my husband's specialty. Um, he is more of a, I always say that we approach magic in a yin and yang way because he is very kind of highbrow. He's our yogi, our uh, Reiki master. He's our yogi. He's the one in there doing the, the more palatable, uh, higher brow sort of magic with energy. But he is our harmonics expert. He's also a musician. He's also a trained singer. And he uses 11 different singing bowls that are attuned to different vibrations in the body to create change and magic. So that's what he does. I'm more of the here, hold my beer. I'm going to go pull a demon out of this person. So <laughs> we're very different in our approaches, but it all comes together in this beautiful complimentary way. But that is totally his jam. He does crystal singing bowl sound baths. And so the effects of sound and music and vibration and harmonics and binaural beats are really no pun intended, instrumental to him. And I've seen him do amazing work with that. It's really fascinating. We've been together for 24 years. And so I've had lots of time to watch him do this. And you, you can't deny it. It's incredible. Wow. So you sort of have the different ways, different, two different approaches to, to magic, basically. We do. I was trained primarily through European witchcraft, but also for many years in Bujeria, which is uh, Mexican magic. And that is more earthy. It's more, um, more folk magic, more very hands-on grassroots. What have you got in your cupboard? We're not casting a circle. We're doing this right now sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the healing that I do and the spell work I do for people comes from that extraction with those European influences. Where does Bujeria come from? You know, it was always here. I have a lot of people ask that. I wrote a book on Bujeria for Llewellyn. And um, so they'll say, how did Bujeria get to America, for instance? But it was always here. You know, there was a time when a good part of America was actually Mexico. And mm -hmm. so it developed just here, just like it did in Mexico. And it comes from some of the uh, ancient Aztec practices and the Mexica. And then when the Spanish conquest occurred, they brought the European influence into what was going on. And so they have an unbroken lineage of witchcraft and magic, whereas in European practice, it was very maligned and prosecuted and went underground. That didn't really happen as much uh, throughout Mexico and up into the United States. So it just continued. It was very adaptive and so the theory is and the legend is that the brujas in mexico saw what was happening in europe they knew they were probably next so they syncretized onto catholicism and saint work long before the 
actual invasion happened. Mm -hmm. So the Spanish came and said, okay, carry on. <laughs> you know, and not that it was a bloodless coup or anything. Yeah. In regard to magic, it was not attacked and maligned because they had already adapted. And they just continued doing the same things with different faces to their gods. Interesting. I, I guess that's why I've always kind of confused uh, Brujaria, um, Voodoo, Hoodoo, and Santeria. Because the, the, I understand now that they are they come from separate places, mm -hmm. but it seems like at, at all at certain points kind of merged with uh, Catholicism. They absolutely do. And then with hoodoo, you've got two different branches. So you've got the hoodoo that was practiced specifically in New Orleans, and that has a Catholicism basis to it because of the French. But when you get into the plantations where the black belt hoodoo emerged, there you're going to have a Protestant foundation to it. That's where you get into all of the work with the books of Moses and um, the Bible being used as a grimoire. And with the, uh, the, the Catholic side that came up through the French, they have a different take on it. Both are hoodoo, both are legitimate. They just have a different religious foundation. Yeah, I that that was something I really, really, really recently just became aware of. You know, um, you know, I spent so much time working with the the tarot and and more of like the, you know the ceremonial side, like you know stuff like with the um, book of Abramelin and three books of occult philosophy and all that kind of stuff. Sure. And you know that that those traditions sort of neglect sort of folk magic in its integration into other religions in order to keep going. Those type of ceremonial practices were often ones that were reserved for the magicians of the court, for instance. Seen mm -hmm. as a higher level of work, uh, the high magic it's called, and a lot of the things that uh, really were popular, popularized by Crowley, for instance, were um, of that court type of magician work whereas this was more of grassroots roots most of the traditions you mentioned did uh, draw from and and come from the the African traditional religions and so it's just that the slaves were deposited in different places so their memories of the type of practice that they had in Africa grew in different ways and developed in different ways based on their geographical surroundings but yeah it, it is more of creating an outcome based on immediate need. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of protection work, a lot of don't let my husband stray, a lot of uh, keeping people safe, keeping people healthy, creating prosperity, that sort of thing. Um, and, and I know you have a, a book on, um, I jumped out, it was like, I think it was like Conjuring and the Crossroads. Oh, Crossroads of Conjure, yes. yes. That is specifically on the development of folk magic in the United States and specifically in the southern United States. I didn't really get into uh, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Dutch powwow because that has a really different feel. It's similar stuff. But it's, it's like um, Hexencraft, right? It is. Something very like that. So. Yes, and it's, it's very patriarchal in a lot of its uh, presentation. 
whereas the ones that developed across the southern United States are much more compatible and similar, and a lot of that is just geographical bleed over. So I just went with the southern states because it was kind of one of these things that's not like the other, and I didn't want to be incongruent with what I was presenting in the book. Is there any difference between like these southern math, uh, southern the magical traditions in the South United States and uh, say, for instance, shamanism, or do you think like all magical traditions sort of have their roots in some type of shamanism? I really think that what we think of as shamanism is something that's presented in a different label in most aspects of uh, religious and spiritual practice, including Christianity. And, um, it really is about going to those different places in our with our spirits to collect higher wisdom and so all all the aspects of magic in the the southern united states i would say definitely have an aspect of shamanism to them um is it like what they did like with shamanism is is it the like one of the things that um, trying to figure out how to put this in the words. What, what throws me off sometimes is shamanism doesn't have all the correspondences that magic, modern magic seems to have. Well, and you know the different types of magic in the South also often do not. For instance, when you're working hoodoo, when you're working. Um, Appalachian granny magic, which they would never call Appalachian granny magic. It was just daily life. They didn't really have a name for it or think of it. Certainly wouldn't think about it as anything called spell work or paganism or anything like that. It's none of these processes are actually pagan based. Like you identified they're uh, Christian based, but um, they, they all really don't go into the whole thing of we're going to cast a circle. North means this South means this. Uh, it, I had to work very hard to separate out my European training. Oh, that was decades long that said, well, if we're going to do this, we do it in the South. If we're going to work with this, we're going to work with uh, the element of water to them. It's, it's based primarily on animism, which is the idea of course, that, everything has a spirit and that spirit has a certain identity and energy signature that we're going to contribute. So if you have correspondences, it's individual to each herb, to each stone, to each um, weather event that you have. Um, hmm. So with, like, say for example, um, superstitions, yeah. Sometimes when I think of like folk magic, I, I think of like somebody throwing like salt over their left shoulder kind of thing. That's part of it too, especially in Appalachian granny magic, uh, or what we now refer to as that. That all came out of Ulster and the Scotch-Irish that migrated from Ulster in Ireland. And so they had a lot of traditions that came with them. They brought the fiddle to America, for instance. Um, and clogging as a style of dancing. And so with them came all of these magical practices. Then we had the magical practices that came, as I was mentioning from the African traditional uh, religions with the slaves, that they had certain things that they did that we would call superstition that to them were protective devices. 
And so throwing the salt over the shoulder is one of them, which is to, you know, there are different theories as to how that superstition came about, but basically salt was extremely expensive. And so spilling salt was almost seen as a curse and throwing it over your left shoulder was putting that, that accident behind you basically. Hmm. I do know like when I, like I've gone down to, um, you know, where the, um, Mayan ruins are and apparently like, the Mayans used salt as a currency too. So it was like really valuable to them. Yes, absolutely. And you know, what's happening when you look at the development of magical practices in the United States is affected strongly by that transmigration. Because when we have the people who were developing hoodoo on the plantations in the South, we had a slave escape, where are they going to go? They're going to go often into the Appalachian mountains because it was harder to find them there. And because it was a little bit more hospitable to slaves in that area. And so that brings hoodoo into Appalachia. We've also got the great uh, movement west that's going to spread it that way. And then that's going to handshake with Brujeria as they are integrating. And so it really is a melting pot of information. So when you're just talking about Brujeria, you're going to see the uses of some of the, the hoodoo influences and vice versa. Everybody was just sort of sharing with everybody else because there wasn't a competition mm-hmm. a lot of times now we have all of these like everywhere uh, magical groups saying well this is the right way to do this and you have to do this and you have to do that none of that existed then it was just this is what we do what do you do almost like cooking how do you cook cake this is how i cook cake <laughs> you know one of the things that that that, that cracks me up with, with the magical some of these magical traditions is People saying that their way is the right way, it it, it, it it bothers me so much. Like, who who's anybody to say that their way is the right way and somebody else's way is the wrong way, as long as the intention is the same? We have gotten that so often. Now, my husband and I, um, like I said, we've been active in the the pagan community for 24 years as a couple and so for 20 years we ran a formal circle that was open and had people coming in this sort of thing and we developed our own magical tradition called cusp which is climbing up the spiral pathway basically saying that we circle the eight sabbats of the witches every year and come back on a higher level so it creates this helix of effect so that you're always building on what you did before and so the spiral became our symbol and we kind of commandeered that. And the back in the day, this was, again, 20-some years ago, Wicca was very prominent in the Sacramento community where we were working. And they lost their minds. We had prominent Wiccan leaders writing to us hate mail. Because one of the things we established with our tradition is that in nature, energy moves in a counterclockwise uh, uh, projection. And so we thought, you know, the earth turns counterclockwise on its axis. It moves counterclockwise around the sun. Uh, We look at clockwise because of a reflection that we saw on the sundial. Mm -hmm. And so if we are going to embrace counterclockwise, we were going to move the energy in our circle counterclockwise. We also cast our circles hand to hand with one hand touching the person beside them. And so if you go with the idea that the left brain is feminine or excuse me is male and projective 
and the right brain is female and receptive if it crosses the meridians and your left hand is controlled by your right brain and your right hand is controlled by your left brain and you've got your hands up to somebody mm-hmm. then your hand is pushing and your left hand is receiving and that automatically moves the energy in a counterclockwise direction and oh my gosh i had prominent leaders saying this is like giving a, a gun to a baby why are you teaching all these newbies that it's okay to move energy counterclockwise and we just looked at each other like what what's happening here <laughs> <laughs> why is this a, a, a deal and it threatened something and i even would ask them explain to me what's going to happen what is this big bad that's going to come up from moving energy counterclockwise in a circle well i don't know but it's going to be really bad well, you know, 24 years later, we're still okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that just goes to show that, yes, they're very wedded to this, not just pagans, everybody. Yes. The only right way. There is no room for anything else. And it's just adorable. It's like watching a toddler just stomp their foot and have a little fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had... Um... I had um, Lon Milo Duquette on my show. And I had posted it in some Facebook groups and uh, some guy like really attacked me about it, you know, like saying like, you know, he's bad. He ripped uh, Crowley off and this and that, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and I was just, I was kind of shocked, you know, I was like, whoa, <laughs> where did that come from? And I invited the guy on my show just to get his point of view. And, um, you know, None, none of his justifications really made sense to me. But you know, there isn't any prominent writer. There isn't anyone who came up with any type of original air quotes around original idea that was not influenced directly or indirectly by Crowley. So, mm-hmm. because I mean, if you look even back into Wicco that we were just talking about, Gerald Gardner was really good friends with Crowley. And interestingly enough, a lot of his first books of shadows has almost identical word for word Crowley quotes in it. Yeah. So everybody got a little piece of Crowley there. Absolutely. Yeah, he's everywhere. <laughs> and plus, by by all accounts, he was also not the nicest man in the neighborhood. I mean, this was not Mister Rogers here. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I sometimes when I hear that about Crowley. I wonder if it was a facade that he was putting up. Well, I got info for you there, and it's inside. When I lived in Sacramento, down the street from me was this bazillion-year-old dude who worked at the local uh, homeless shelter. He, he lived on our street, went down there every day. Call, it's called Loaves and Fishes, and did his work and came back. He actually lived next door to Aleister Crowley. Uh-huh. He was growing up, and he said he was a... Uh, he was not a nice man. <laughs> <laughs> very minded, magical person. He says, yeah, he was very magical, very mystical, very interesting, but he was not a nice person. <laughs> hmm. So I have the opinion of somebody who actually did know him as opposed to people just deciding that he's the beast. Yeah. yeah. I, like, I know he got the beast name from his mother, right? I think she used to call him a little beast or something like that. No, that's fair. <laughs> I and, think... So I could go with that. But but even like his writing, some of it, I know, I always kind of found it kind of dry. True. But then again, uh, back to Gerald Gardner, if you read his first book, you'll fall asleep within just a couple of chapters. Uh, the <laughs> of 
writing of that time was not exactly compelling. So <laughs> true. <laughs> None of that stuff was an easy read. Just no. <laughs> I have a lot, you know, you get these people that just discover magic. They just discover spell work and they want to know everything and they want to learn everything. So everybody wants a required reading list and they always wonder why I don't put some of those books on the, re the required reading list because the ability to appreciate that sort of thing only comes after you have a fundamental knowledge and can pour your way through some of that dry writing. Yeah. Um, who would you recommend for people to read, of course, other than your own books? I think, well, now, that being said, I, I write for Pathios Pagan, and uh, I'm contracted under Llewellyn right now, so I have mm -hmm. the distinct pleasure of meeting a lot of the new voices that are out there right now. And there are historical people who are fantastic writers. And when I say historical, I mean... 20 years ago, not 100 years ago, necessarily. I mean, we can get into Agrippa and all some of the, the older <laughs> writings that are influential. But right now, we have some of the most amazing voices coming forward in paganism and magic and spell work that are here with us now. Some of the younger people are putting out fantastic work. Um, if you're going to look to old guys like me, uh, John Beckett is fabulous. He's a druid guy that writes for Pathios and has several books out. Thorn Mooney writes fantastic Wicca work, as does Jason Mankey. Um, who else would I really be into? Madam Hamida, I love for just down-to-earth hoodoo spell work. She's great. Um, for the older school, Silver Ravenwolf and Scott Cunningham changed the face of Wicca. They right. really took it out of that British traditionalist box and just smash the ceiling and said you can do anything you want to have at it so there there are a lot of great voices out there and really i i am a frustrated librarian i guess i actually <laughs> worked for a library for many years i read voraciously i am fascinated by books and as much as i would like to say the market's flooded there's a lot of crap information out there most of what you're going to pick up nowadays is really good. It's really hard to find bad magical books now, which is great. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, how do you how um how do you feel about sort of like integrating, you know, Eastern traditions with Western traditions? I think it's absolutely necessary. I, there's too much, and this is our new thing. You know, we were just talking about my way is the right way and that that's kind of the theme for the longest time and it's still there to some degree. But right now the new thing is if you have interest in any subject that is not your own, then you're appropriating. And I think that we have a time right now where magic is starting to become a melting pot, even though we have certain um, entitlements genetically speaking, you know, learning about different traditions is essential because our world is getting so small. Mm -hmm. Even in Brujeria, one of the, the charms that we use is the Nazar to ward off the evil eye or mal de ojo, and that's Turkish. So, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of blending that happens, and I think that it's essential that we, especially now when the whole world seems to be in crisis, that everybody who is able to elevate their energy 
who are able to incorporate science. Now there's our big need for incorporation into magic. You know, we all need to be coming together, working together and not playing this. This is my path. This is my path. You can't touch it thing. We need to get all of this mess together to get our energy as humanity vibing a little bit higher. Yeah. You know, I, I know for myself, like, like as a, you know, most of this stuff, you know, I started getting into it as a teenager because I was a heavy metal fan and all the occult lyrics. And so I would go and like read the books to find out what stuff was about. And, um, you know, and I was just sort of like, you know, like a kid, I was just like a lighthearted dabbler. And, um, but I read a lot of books and, and some of it seemed really foreign to me, you know, especially kind of like the, like the key of Solomon, the greater key. And, uh, it wasn't until later in life when I discovered, you know, I started um, practicing meditation, like Buddhist meditation. And when I was doing that, all of a sudden I said, you know, I think that's what you were talking about in the first part of that book. Well, and you're dead on. You, you got it exactly right. I remember there was a time when I was in an actual magic store that was run by one of our Wiccan leaders in the area. And he had a blank book that he kept. It was just a, like a little journal, but it was just a little blank book that he kept at the desk. And every now and then somebody would come up and look at it and say, oh, it's blank. There's nothing in here. And he would say, what? What do you mean there's nothing in there? No, these pages are blank. And clearly, I mean, they were. But he would say, well, the initiated can see it. Why can't you see it? And so it was like a third level Wiccan practitioner joke amongst all of us. And, but in a way he was correct because there are some books you read and you're not at that place yet. So it doesn't make any sense. And you come back three or four years later and all of a sudden it's the best book that you ever read. So yeah. that does seem to be the case. They, there's an old saying that when, you, when you're ready, the teacher will come, the teacher will present. You don't have to force anything about learning magic, anything about any of this, your teacher will come when you're ready, even if that's in the form of a book. Mm -hmm. And I had Susanna Budapest's Holy Book of Women's Mysteries. I read it the first time and went, I don't get it. This doesn't speak to me. I don't, it doesn't work. A few years later, I read it and thought it was fantastic. So really, we just have to find where we are in that moment. And I think it comes back to those observed particles I talked about. Uh -huh. I think the book changes. Not just our perception oh. of it. I think the book <laughs> literally changes. <laughs> yeah, like like I I, I my, my own experience was was like the meditation really helped because I, I kind of realized too is how can I expect to um you know control outside factors if I can't even manage my own internal mind. <laughs> and meditation is so intimidating to people how many people do you hear Gary that say I can't meditate I hear and, it all the time <laughs> and it's because I believe at least that they think meditation is something that it's not at least starting out and I hear people say I can't visualize and a friend uh, of mine once said well what does a strawberry look like and they're like, oh, it's red. It's got pits. You know, it's got, well, you just visualized a strawberry when I asked you that. So they try to make it harder than it is. You know, it's not about the nothingness inside. That's, that's your goal. That's way far down the line. For now, it's just about being still, being able to just stop. And mm -hmm. be, 
And people are really intimidated by that. They don't like that idea of not being in motion. Yeah. Like, like, like for me, like, it's almost like, like, that's like the like first grade of all this stuff is mm-hmm. first just being able to the, the, the control my mind. And even in, in the Bible, it says, be still and know that I am God. And so you have to be still to even hear divinity or hear inner higher self or wisdom. And people don't like to be alone with their thoughts, much, much less be alone with the thoughts of something divine. Mm-hmm. They're always in motion. They're always distracted and never slow down and just listen. And that's where the, the real power is. Yeah. And, and that's what connected with me back to that, that key of Solomon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it talks about like a 21 day cleansing ritual. And, you know, you, you basically have to isolate yourself and fast for like 21 days. I and, actually, in October, just fasted for five days. Mm-hmm. And it completely changed my world. I was very surprised. I never for one thing thought I could do it. I'd fasted for maybe 36 hours before, but, and there's, you know, just, I didn't think it would make a difference. So I could see where 21 days would just be mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I forget, like it's like fasting with a certain type of diet though, you know, like you're allowed to drink water and have like a certain amount of, mm. you know, protein and bread and stuff like that. But it's like, it's like the bare minimum, you know, that you would need to survive. I have a friend that did 14 days on just water and coffee. And wow. as far as actively knowing somebody who did a prolonged fast, that was the longest I, I actually know of someone who did. Hmm. But yeah, I did five, five, hour, or five, ugh, five days just on uh, water and a little bit of bouillon for the salt to get the electrolytes up again. And it was, it was pretty impressive. I, and it came after. It wasn't during the fast that anything changed. It was after. And, and what was it that changed? My entire relationship with food actually changed. My relationship with myself changed because I did something I didn't think I could ever do, which is always, and especially, like I said, I'm 59. When you get to be, you know, 60 or so, you pretty much figure you've done what you're going to do. And anything else is just repeating old patterns. And so I did something completely different. And so I was impressed with that, that patting myself on the back that worked, but really my body completely relearned everything it was eating and something like I can't eat beef now. Mm -hmm. Love a steak. I mean, I'm just a beef person. And every time I eat beef now, my stomach gets upset. I can't have pizza now. Stomach gets upset can't have any type of just sugar candy or something like that. My blood, my blood glucose will spike instantly. So I just reset everything to a baseline. That is probably how I think I'm supposed to feel uh-huh. without having been made immune to all of those things. Wow. So my body is now able to better communicate with me. Nope. We're not doing this, sir. Yeah, this is good. We're sleeping well now do this. I have an extreme sensitivity to caffeine now. See, that's the one thing I can't live without. <laughs> I, I was surprised. And now I still have caffeine now. But if I have it after, say, 2 o'clock, I will not sleep that night. Oh, not yeah. until 5 o'clock. Yeah. I, I mean, me too. Like, if I have it after about 5 o'clock, I have to cut it off. Um, yeah. One of the things that, that's interesting, too, about food um, 
and I didn't. I, I went through a phase where I tried to follow basically Leviticus on 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 food. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, but what it made me realize is food is sacred. Truly, I, I wrote a book called um, "Goddess in the Kitchen," and it was about the relationship people have with food and how to use the the inherent qualities of food in spell work. So it's basically how to cook a meal that's going to be a spell and influence somebody based on the ingredients that you use. And in that book, I address the fact that food is the first intimate relationship we have with anybody. So being fed shows that person cares enough to keep you alive. And is that intimacy, and we carry that intimacy all the way through our lives with our celebrations, with how we show love, how we comfort. And uh, that also lends a sacredness to what we put in our mouth. And a lot of times we don't consider what we put in our mouth to be sacred. We don't relish it. Uh, There's a guy named Guion Raven who wrote a book called The Magic of Food. And he's also one of our premier voices of magic in 2020, 2021. And he talks about how we don't savor and relish and delight in the food we put in our bodies anymore. Yeah. And also, you just brought up something that I've never really considered, which is the companionship and the relationship aspect to it. My grandfather, you know, he's like an old Italian from Italy. And he used to always say, the man who eats alone dies alone. Ouch. <laughs> so, so you know, they were really big on the, like, you know, the family gatherings and stuff like that. Sure. And, you know, when we want to impress some, somebody, a boss, what do we do? We take them out to dinner or we take mm-hmm. them to our house and serve the best wine. If we want, or if we're going on a, out on a date and we don't know somebody, what do we do? We take them to a nice restaurant. So always wanting to share. If we get dumped and suddenly we're single, what do we do? We eat ice cream. I mean, we always have comfort and braggadocio through food that's how we show ourselves off yeah yeah it is true and it's i think i know for me anyway it's something that i've always kind of just done on autopilot and never thought about it well and we also socialize exclusively and, and are exclusive about foods and drinks and things like that for instance just by choice not by any uh, judgmentalism or anything. I don't drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. I'm immediately suspect in any gathering. Oh, why aren't you drinking? Are you the designated driver? Come on, have a drink. What's wrong with you? You know, just the idea that I don't drink is so foreign to people. I don't drink coffee, and that's weird to people. Right. So it's funny how we isolate around these certain rituals of food and drink. That if you don't do this, there's something absolutely wrong with you. That's funny. I get the same thing too because I don't drink either. <laughs> <laughs> I just think alcohol is just like, I don't know, it's just nasty. <laughs> they never agreed with me. <laughs> husband, I've had two husbands and they were both avid drinkers. They both enjoy it very much. They are the classic, I enjoy how I feel. I enjoy how this tastes. I like every part of this. And yeah, it just to me, I feel poison going into my body. 
whenever I drink alcohol. I don't react well. I'm not a fun drunk. I sit and start talking about very serious things, whereas I'm really sort of ribald and brassy and foul-mouthed. And you know. <laughs> <laughs> so when I'm drinking, I start talking about 401ks and you know, it's very boring. <laughs> it's experience for anybody, so I just stopped. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not having a glass of wine with the girls or anything like that. And it's just, it's boring. Hmm. boring so, for me, boring for them. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, just around the topic, um, how about like, like um, using like, um, you know, like plant-based or organic-based um, type of things for rituals, you know, like, like marijuana or ayahuasca, mushrooms? I really believe that this is, this is my absolute firm belief. Uh, somebody came to me recently and they'd gone to, I guess you'd call a rival metaphysical store. It's, it's like the other bookstore in the area. And they had asked for an herb for protection. Now this is in Sacramento. So it's a very big town. You'd think we have hundreds of metaphysical stores. We just, we don't. And uh, they asked for an herb for protection. And the person there told them, I can get it for you. It's out of England. I'm going to have to special order it. It's very expensive. Now, that being said, the greatest protective herb that you can use is rosemary, which grows wild in Sacramento. You can mm -hmm. literally walk past the courthouse with a piece of scissors and, or, and with scissors and collect all the rosemary you need. Right. I mean, it just it grows <laughs> into herbs. And yet we're going to need this special substance that we're going to get from England. My firm belief is that, for lack of a better term, the land spirits of a place provide everything you need mm -hmm. for any purpose. And that includes hallucinogenic herbs if you need to, to travel. And it includes healing herbs and protection herbs and protection stones and uh rocks to draw in love it's all right around you and when you gather it from your geographical location it's all the more powerful because it's associated with your local land spirits so sure i can't grow mandrake in california so if i order that from england it's not that it's not going to work for what i'm doing it's just that it's more powerful if it is locally sourced so to answer your question I'm a big fan of every part of nature being incorporated mm. magic so living in Alabama, I would probably have to use cotton for everything. Everything. And cotton's very versatile, so get right on that. But you've also got – do you grow tobacco there? Uh, not in the no. part that I'm in, no. Okay. I'm, I'm from Kentucky, and so Kentucky, Tennessee, you know, every, just like you with cotton, everything is tobacco. Mm -hmm. Tobacco is a fantastic offering, uh, herb, purifying. So – for me, if I were in Kentucky, yeah, you know, it would be primarily tobacco or dandelion or some of the things that we're growing there. So it's really local. So if you know your local horticulture and, and stones, then your magic makes itself. Hmm. So by being in Alabama, you are in the heart of hoodoo territory. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, so it's all about what is in your cupboard. And you mentioned hoodoo and voodoo before, and a lot of people don't know the difference, whereas voodoo is a religious practice. Hoodoo is just straight out magic work. It's mm -hmm. folk magic. And so when you look at a hoodoo 
recipe book. Uh, for instance, there's a really great one by Talia Felix, and it's called the Hoodoo Cookbook, and or the Conjure Cookbook. I'm sorry. And inside it, she's going to have recipes for all of these traditional items like Chinese wash and fourth east vinegar and gooper dust. And there's going to be 60 or 70 different ingredients, but you're only using four or five. And you're just picking from that list mm -hmm. and no proportions because you're going to figure it out based on what you've got. So it's not like a cookbook. It's just, you can use any of these things to make this. And so you just go to your cupboard, you pull out what you got and you use it because these were not people of affluence who could go get this or that. I mean, if they weren't growing lemongrass and they didn't have it, they're not just going to not do the recipe because they don't have lemongrass. Yeah. So it's, what have you got? Put it together. Hmm. I wonder if I could grow white sage here. That's always what I've used for cleansing is white sage. It might be too wet there. Most white sage is going to need a dry desert environment to grow. Now, for instance, I live in the mountains. Now, right. I, our big hub is Sacramento, but that's 90 minutes from my house. My shop is halfway between my house and Sacramento. And you just, as you go into my house, you get further and further up mountains. So I'm maybe at 4,100 feet. I'm way up there. Lots of evergreens. Uh, not a sage plant in sight. It's all evergreens. It's all mountains. And we don't have grass. We have forest floor. So when my husband grew a garden, sage isn't going to grow there you know you might get some little scraggly kind of sage white sage growing but not very much and so really it's it, you might you might have some luck with it but any of the salvias will work great for purification so even just garden sage is a great purifier yeah that i could grow yeah and you just dry it out light it up it'll smell like sausage but it'll work just fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I still and i do like the smell of the white sage too because it smells a little bit like marijuana so <laughs> i've always loved that smell of course cannabis itself is a great purificant too uh, that grows here. oh it goes everywhere <laughs> it grows everywhere <laughs> yeah i'm a big fan of the use of cannabis with with ritual and with uh, astral travel and with um m m's and just <laughs> <laughs> And M, M is for magic, you see. <laughs> yep. <laughs> magic, I don't know, magic, M and M. <laughs> and I'm blessed to be in California where that just ain't no problem. So. Yeah. Well, actually, surprisingly, there's been, uh, and it's actually going through, there's been a big push here to, uh, to, for uh, farmers to get licenses to be able to grow. More and more states are moving forward with it. You know, it's, it's, it's still restricted in certain parts of California. They leave it to local uh, municipalities to decide. And so my county is one of the more conservative ones on all levels. And so you still can only have your little, little stretch, but it'll, it gets more than enough for a person or two. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'll that's the one thing that here that they're actually pretty liberal about well, everything. I, remember, I, don't, I don't drink. So yep. <laughs> <Gotta> <laughs> explore the alternatives. Yep. Um, so, so, you know, it's, it's what, when we were talking about like the hoodoo being different from voodoo, 
I had interviewed, um, I think her name was Ms. Ida on Hoodoo. <laughs> and uh, when I accidentally used the term voodoo. Oh, I'm sorry. Bless your heart. It was bad. <laughs> yeah, that's a touchy one. It really is. And especially in areas now, because hoodoo is based in Christianity, specifically Protestant, you know, or, or Catholic, depending on what part, what region you're from. It's, it is very, it, it carries those Christian uh, isolative social aspects. And so to equate it to voodoo, which is its own religion, that can get really touchy sometimes. Voodoo is incredible. I don't, I'm not a practitioner of it, but it is, it demands a lot of its people. It's, it's a heavy religion. I mean, there's some of the rituals last for days. It's yeah. the same. You know, the rituals will sometimes last for a very long time. I don't want to do something that feels good for a long time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's what's demanded of them. But it's fascinating. And I just have the greatest respect for people that, that have that sort of endurance. You know, I'm in a two-hour ritual. And I'm like, man, can we get out of here? I'm getting tired. <laughs> yeah, you know, because you're extending energy. Absolutely. Yeah, I tend to run a lot of energy. And even the type of work that I do, it's not my energy. You know, it's, it's divine energy that I'm yeah. moving through, especially with the healings. But it's still exhausting. And it really shouldn't be. It really, in an ideal world, you would just be the conduit. You're just the pipe that the water's going through. But mm -hmm. good Lord, I get tired. If I've got four or five healings in a day, it's exhausting. And yeah. I just, you know, eat M&Ms and go to sleep. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, funny. I'm blessed that I have some really amazing apprentices that work with me. And, and so they take a lot of the, the load as well. I've got third year students that are as good as me or better. You always hope that your students are going to be better than you are mm -hmm. and continue to grow what you're doing. And these, these people are just fantastic healers. And so sometimes I can just say, okay, I'm the old woman. Y'all go ahead, roll with it. Keep, keep going, keep going. Rub that egg, rub that egg. <laughs> you know, it, it's really helpful to have such accomplished students that I can just stand back and go, wow, you guys are amazing. I'm so proud of you. That is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I like what you said though. Like, like, you know, it, it, it's, and ideally, it is not your energy that you're using. It's you like divine energy. And, you know, I, I've had a conversation not too long ago with um, somebody who was like some kind of like Reiki healer or something like that. Mm. And she says, oh, but, you know, you got to be careful because you'll use up all your energy. And I said, mm -hmm. well, what mm -hmm. if it's not, your energy is not really your energy. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong. It's just part of the universe. Well, Eric and I developed, when we were writing the Energy Magic series that we did, is like 10 books that are in this series, we developed a term called bio-universal energy. And bio is what we consider to be your energy, generated by your solar plexus, moving through your body. It's, it's the energy that leaves when you leave. And so it, it's your movement, your processing through your meridians through your seven chakras that's your bio energy and then universal energy of course is universal energy it's everything else that's out there and so our belief is that you do tend to mix those two 
and put them toward your goal. And the reason we come up with that is, is that X factor, which is your will and your desire. The universe doesn't necessarily have your desire to get a new car. Um, or your desire to have a partner that you're compatible with. And so it's that little factor of what you want that flavors your magic. And that's what we consider to be the bio part of it. And everything else is just directing energy toward a goal. Mm-hmm. You believe to some degree that we have an instrument in that symphony, you know, to kind of go back to our, what we were talking about before. But we have our own ego, we have our own wants, we have our own interest. And that selfishness, that self-interest is part of what colors that energy that goes through. So I think that's an energy of its own that kind of blends in there. But yes, if you are just using your energy, forget about it. You're not going to last. You are going to burn out. You have to have that innate ability or that developed ability to channel that universal energy toward that goal or toward that healing, or you're done. What if, like, this is kind of true of me anyway. You know, one of the reasons I don't really do any rituals or magic is simply because I just don't want anything. And that's the attainable. That's where you want to be. And I'm similar. Now, for instance, I have six kids. When they were growing up watching TV, I want the muscle wrestling rink, you know, or I want a skateboard, or I want this. They're very involved with what they want. But now those six kids are all adults between the ages of 21 and 42. If they want something, they go out and get it. So Christmas is tough because I've got to outthink them. I've got to figure out something they don't know that they want. Mm -hmm. And that's how it is with magic. When you're first starting out, you're like, oh, I can get a better apartment. Oh, I can get a nicer car. I can do this, or I can get my light bill paid, or I can do this, or I can do that. And it's exciting that you are able to implement change in your life that doesn't involve the usual means. But as you progress through this, ideally, in a few decades, you are going to get to a place of existential satisfaction. So that you're not needing to be coddled by so many things and experiences that you're having to constantly manifest energy. And that's when you move on to using that universal energy and some of your own energy, if you decide to, to help other people who aren't there. You're reaching back down the ladder and you do that through your podcast. I mean, you're sharing information for people. And so we all find our little place we were paying forward Mm -hmm. what we were doing back then. And so I think it's a natural progression. That's when we're getting into that sage and crone place of sharing rather than needing. Yeah. Because even now, like, 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 I mean, I always, like I have everything I need, like a house and food and a wife and, you know, material stuff. But at the same time, I know if all I had was was a suitcase with some clothes in it mm-hmm. and a road to walk down, I'd probably be fine. Well, and we say that from a place of tremendous privilege. Because if, God forbid, my husband got coronavirus tomorrow and or something happened where I did lose my home and had to live on the street, you know, I will likely be working to manifest something to shelter me 
from the storm. I will likely be channeling healing energy toward him if he got sick. Mm -hmm. you know, shoot, if my dog gets sick, I'm sending energy to my dog. I'm not going to just stand back and not, you know, send healing energy to my, my beloved pet. You know, so I think that I am able to say I'm very happy where I am now. I don't want for anything. I live a coveted life where magic is my day job and my side hustle and what I do. And it supports me well, which I never expected to be in that place. Right. And so I feel very blessed for that. I feel blessed that people trust me and come into my shop and say, I'm in a horrible place. What can I do to help this? And I say, well, we can use this candle. We can use these herbs. We can do a cleansing on you to get rid of any obstacles. And two months later, they're coming back to me and things are better. So I'm honored for that. But I am a, also a big proponent of the idea of, but for the grace of God, there go I. I could get to a bad place where I might not feel that way. Mm. From perspective, I can say, yes, I feel that way. But uh, I am very aware that I am in an entitled position when I say that. So, you know, I, if it were just me, I might be saying a different thing. Uh, but with kids and, and husband and animals and things like that, I get a little greedy with their presence. So. <laughs> See, I, I think my family always sort of expected me just to be a homeless guy walking around with a suitcase. You win already. <laughs> it's, it's what it's expected of me. If I had gone with my family's expectation, I, I wrote a book called Leaving Kentucky in the Broad Daylight which was about my life up to age 16 because I had a weird life and a weird family and I adore them and they're all gone now. But uh, it was just a strange upbringing with a fundamentalist grandmother minister and, you know, just to parents who were both had different types of mental illnesses. It was just a weird time. And uh, if I'd gone with what my parents expected of me, um, I probably would still have at least six kids and I would, most likely be married to a coal miner that beat me into new shapes every Friday night. And it would just be a whole other life. <laughs> when I was growing up, you could go to college and get a nice certificate as a nurse or a teacher. You could go into the coal mines or if you were male, you could join the military. So options were very limited for females when I was growing up. So I kind of bucked the system, which was not really professional, which that was not on my mom and dad's game card. For <laughs> I would end up <laughs> getting demons out of people doing exorcisms, that sort of thing. No, that wasn't on the, that wasn't on the calling card. <laughs> <laughs> so, so doing exorcisms, uh, um, yeah. it, like, um, I, I mean, I have a friend here who's a, uh, well, he's a retired Catholic priest. And I know he's witnessed an exorcism. Um, but I also know that, like, there's different ways of doing exorcisms. And, and there's, I've heard different theories on what is actually being exercised. Well, and it's tough to... It's tough to know all of the facets of it because on one hand, we know that most of the people who a hundred years ago got exorcisms were what we would now call mentally ill people, schizophrenic people and uh, bipolar people, even um, people who were called nymphomaniacs 
100 years ago would now be just considered people with a healthy libido. So it's really time sensitive as to what we're calling what. We also have to wonder if the people that we are now calling bipolar or schizophrenic actually do have an infiltration causing a problem. So it's, there's all kinds of aspects of that. And the way you deal with each case is very different. I don't do the intense exorcisms anymore. I just got too old for that. Basically what you're doing is just restraining and holding on to somebody and reciting incantations while they vomit and poop and pee everywhere and swear at you. It's not for the light of heart. It's exhausting. Um, you also have to get into the development of the idea of whether this is for show is this real? Are they just attention seeking? And so there's this whole litany of questions that runs through your mind when you're addressing exorcism mm -hmm. uh, and exorcism. Now, most of mine just involve pulling low level demons, infiltrations, entities out of people, um, old trauma wounds from people that are influencing how they are now. So my, what I do right now is really low level compared to what I used to do. One, one thing of interest that I really found when I started going into the exorcism work during my training is I thought it was going to be very John Constantine. I just saw myself tooling into this room with the cigarette off my, my bottom lip <laughs> and the mirror all ready to throw the demons into, give me my blue triangle. We're going to throw down right here, right now, the power of Christ compels you. And uh, what I found is the power of Christ does not really compel demons very much. Uh, most of the demons that I encountered, like the higher level ones that were, exorcism worthy were you know they considered christ to be a benevolent person so they weren't all that afraid but you call in the blessed mother or you call in santa morte and all of a sudden they realize they got a cake in the oven and they're gone i mean it's almost like you say i'm gonna tell mom and they leave so <laughs> i found a much greater response in the female divinities than i did when i would just work through jesus and i've worked with jesus quite a bit and but in exorcisms and you know the use of crosses and things like that didn't really do a whole lot um so the demons themselves um are they actual spirits that um you know enter somebody or is it more like a thought form uh Yes, <laughs> it's really kind of both in that we create the gods and demons of humanity. You know, I really believe that. And there's only been, I, I've done a number of exorcisms or what would be considered exorcisms. And I would say there were two times that I can think of where this was actually something that I felt had come up from whatever level of hell to specifically torture this person. And all the rest of them were really just people that were either looking for attention. I used to have, cause I worked with the Hispanic community quite a bit. So I would have a lot of grandmothers bringing their, their grandsons in and basically throwing them into my chair and saying, fix this rebellious little piss because you know, they've got to be possessed because of how they're acting. And I would pull the kid aside and say, look, don't worry. I got you. I'm going to take care of this. <laughs> and I would go through the motions of the exorcism. Then I would say, stop being an asshole to your abuela. You know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and the grandmother would come back thrilled, you know, that I had exercised this, this 
rebellious child. I would get guys bringing in their wives saying this person must be uh, possessed because they're cheating on me. And I would just do a counseling session with the wife and then go through a few motions. So it's not always what the client thinks it is. Mm -hmm. Sometimes 16 year olds are just little jerks, you know, and sometimes your wife is cheating on you because you're not treating her well at home. So, you know, it, it, there's all this nuance to it. So there was two times that I really thought, yeah, this is a demon I'm looking at. This person did not conjure this up. This was sent to them. And I would communicate with the demon. And then it really, it was very, you had to work really hard to keep the fear tamped down. Because as soon as, it's like a wild dog or something. As soon as they sense the fear in you, it's over. You know, you're mm -hmm. And so that, those two were, those two really were the exceptions to the rule that caused me to believe that most of our demons are self-created or low level things that other people send to us with their, animosity or their envy or um, their paltry little spell work that they do with their poppets and stirring the cauldron kind of thing. How about like goetic demons? Man, we, that, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, you know, I will tell you that the most common demons that I see, what I would call entities actually, are incidentally acquired. And what'll happen is you'll have entities that share our world, smaller, larger, that are like parasites. And they come into our, our energetic field and they set up housekeeping in us and they begin to feed on our good feelings for lack of a better term they feed on our joy they feed on our feelings of success they feed on our uh endorphins mm -hmm. to the point that they're sitting down there like a fat little tick getting healthier and happier and our vitality is just draining and draining and draining and we get very baselined when this happens so that's very difficult for us to respond to anything because something is consuming all of those feelings and it'll even feed on fear so that we have trouble being afraid, but we do feel victimized. We do feel paranoid. We do feel exhausted all the time. We do feel like there's no hope. We do feel like that, that we can't make any progress. There's you know, obstacles everywhere we turn and we feel heavy and we feel contaminated. And then you start going to the doctor and you start taking antidepressants or you start trying to uh, have Western medicine take care of this and they can't alleviate some of the symptoms. But you'll be walking through Walmart one day and walk past somebody and all of a sudden you start to feel a little bit better. Like, wow, maybe I've turned a corner on this. Maybe that medicine is working. Mm -hmm. And what actually happened is that that entity jumped to somebody else who just walked past you and said, gosh, I, I might be coming down with something. I'm feeling a little bit heavy here. Hmm. so they just kind of leave and after they've chewed up somebody like gum and so of all of the entities that i removed those are the ones i pull out the most interesting do you think that uh a lot of these demons are um like astral entities that existed on this planet before um organic life forms existed you know 
here's here's what I'll say. I rule out nothing. I just there's nothing I really disqualify when I hear people's theories and thoughts on things like that. There are some things that I'll say that sounds really stupid. That's this is not one of them. <laughs> but um you know, so in the whole world of what we've dreamt of in your philosophy or mine, Gary, I, I don't rule out anything. But some things sound dumber than others. Uh, that's not one of them. I really think that that is a possibility. I just think we just don't know. Yeah. I didn't. Um, I was now one thing. I think that you and I share an interest in Bigfoot. Yes. <laughs> and when I uh, when I moved to Grizzly Flats, California. Uh, 16 years ago, my son drove up, drove there from Canada and his, he had just driven all these miles, you know, from Victoria, Canada, went on the ferry, drove down the coast, came over to my house, gets up on the mountain, gets out of the car. The first thing he says is the only things that would live on this damn mountain are my mom and Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> and I had started to get to a place where I doubted and I, I went to a presentation. Uh, do you know who Don Fru is? No. Okay. He's a Bigfoot enthusiast and researcher. He's also a major OTO guy. Um, but I went to his presentation in San Jose and I came away a believer. So absolutely anybody with a good sound um, theory, I'm willing to listen to and see if it resonates with me. And the idea that there are things that have been here before we were here and after plays into my concert theory. So Interesting. Yeah, cool. I think we could absolutely be here. And we're just one species. And yes. we think we know the species of everything that lives on our earth and we haven't even tapped the surface. Right. So I really think that they, these could just be another species of being that's here that we, we don't, I think it was maligned for so long that we just don't want to believe it could possibly be true. Yeah, I kind of think that maybe at one time we were able to see and interact with other multidimensional beings and we've lost that ability through technological advancements and, and and we've just sort of blocked it out as it just became, that kind of stuff became more and more socially unacceptable. I completely agree. In fact, I wrote a book called Reuniting the Two Selves. That's about conscious self and higher self and how they are like a divorced couple in the same room. That they used to love each other. They used to connect. They used to be able to converse. But now they're so distanced from each other that they can't even get together in mediation. And so the, the gist of the book anyway was about how to reconnect conscious self with higher self. But I think that this plays into that, that there was a time that we had all of those senses working together in harmony and that we be, I think there were, um, how can I put it? There were agendas that needed to separate us from that so that we could be weaker. Mm -hmm. and, 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 I, and I totally agree with that. I have a friend who wrote a book called, um, it, it's not it's not aliens. It's worse. It's us. And his whole theory is that that you know human civilization has been around way longer than what we think it is. And at, at some point, um, 
we were basically went into like um, a safe mode where, where some of our faculties were turned off. I absolutely believe that could be the case. And I love science. You know, one of my fav- one of the things that really turned me on the most that I ever read in a witchy book was a book called The Power of the Witch by Lori Cabot, the Witch of Salem. And chapter five of that book was called Witchcraft and Science. And it absolutely changed my life, changed my world. I love science and I love how science applies to witchcraft and to spell uh, work. And the way I teach it is that spell work is energy. It's the movement of energy. It applies to Newtonian principles the same way that electricity does. And I use that analogy a lot. And um, I really do believe that science is it's is the best support that witchcraft has i also believe it's the worst enemy because science gets so arrogant in saying that you know we know this to be true this is absolutely true i don't believe there are any absolute truths yeah yeah i i I do believe that there's a problem with the scientific method that it either is trying to prove or disprove something and that in itself limits possibility, you know, all the possibilities except for two. Well, and science is, I think anytime you come at scientific theory, you're, you're going to be trying to reverse engineer something. You're always trying to, you don't just go at it usually saying, let's see what happens if. You're trying to prove a theory. So you've already got a dog in the race. And so you're going to be looking specific. And of course, there's psychological mm-hmm. backing for this. You're going to be looking for information that supports your theory. Right. And, and right there, there's sort of an issue because we know an observer causes things to change. So it's immediately contaminated no matter what you do, which, yeah. means, again, there are no real truths. We can say we have carbon dated this to go back this far. So we know that this is when human life, no, no, you don't, you don't know. Yeah, we don't know because we've, we're observing it. Right, because we're looking at it, we're changing it. <laughs> it's so, tricky. That's why I rule, I rule nothing out. But at the same time, for instance, um, I will go out on a limb here and saw it off and say, uh, in just my opinion, when I look at the tenets of Scientology, for instance, in Zenu, I think, this really sounds ridiculous. I do not believe this. <laughs> now, I'm not taking away from somebody else's right to believe that. Yeah. But I'm saying that for me, I don't believe this. And there are some things that I can say, no, you know what? That doesn't resonate with me as being organic and correct. That doesn't mean I'm right. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that for me and my perception and my world theory, I everything I observe is going to come from the idea that that's wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I would say, and I agree with you. There's two things that I do kind of hold issue with. One is Scientology. And the other thing is, at least down here in the South, are non-denominational churches. Because they're more political organizations than they are churches. Interesting. And see, that's something that came up after I left Kentucky. Um. So I left in 78 and it was, everybody was denominational of some kind, you you know, you had to have a label to slap on your church. And so that all developed away from me after I left the church. So I'm very interested in that because it's not something that I 
saw. Now, out here in, in California, we've got the Universalist churches. And uh, I haven't been to them very much. We've done rituals there because they were so inclusive. But mm -hmm. I don't know about their, their theologies. But it's definitely fascinating, this idea of we are all one. But there's got to be some underlying current that is pulling that in, I think. Yeah. Like, I'm okay like, with Unitarian and that kind of thing. But here, there's sort of like this weird, I, I don't know, it's like an assembly of God or something like that. Mm -hmm. And because um, I had a job where, where, where my job was to, to, to drive guys from a rehab to church. So I had to sit through all these church services. And I, and I grew up Catholic. So, you know, I'm used to like, you know, all the rituals, sitting up, standing, sitting down, praying, you mm -hmm. know. And these churches was just some guy yelling at people about politics. Interesting. And I'm like, this is just weird. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. We used to say that the greatest magicians and Wiccans were recovered Catholics. Because mm -hmm. they're already used to the robes, the incense, the Latin, you know, <laughs> yeah. the ritual. My husband actually is, his, his family was so Catholic that his mother taught the catechism classes. Mm -hmm. And so he just was immersed in that. I think his, his mom, rest her soul, would have uh, been a nun if she had not chosen to get married and have children. You know, she was so devout. And so it was a very natural fit for him. This was something he really loved and appreciated. Whereas I was raised in a Baptist church and, you know, we're more about the get down than the ritual. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, I think that really was the roots of how differently we approach magic was that formative upbringing and the different forms of, of religious ceremony. Yeah. Like the one thing I always wanted to do though, is to go to that church where people handle rattlesnakes. I'd love to see that. Harlem, Kentucky is the one that I knew about. And I never went because I just got to tell you, I'm not a snake girl. I do not, <laughs> I do not dig on the serpent. And, uh, but I knew people who had gone, apparently it's very fascinating. I went to a lot of the, the Pentecostal churches where people will be overcome by the spirit of God and speak in tongues and fascinating. And I've mm -hmm. always said that, you know, I've felt the spirit of God in almost every type of church you could ever be in, in cathedrals in Catholic cathedrals in, uh, Baptist churches and church of God churches and Pentecostal churches in Wiccan ceremonies in uh, Brujeria practice, you know, I've in the woods and people have always said, you know, how can you be sure that it's the real God? And I think, you know, if you've got to ask that you have never been in the presence of the real God because there is no substitute. You don't mistake that. It's like an orgasm or a sneeze. You, you don't mistake it for something else. It's yeah a very distinctive feeling that when it's there, you know, it's there. And yeah. so that's what really led me. Cause I, my PhD is in religion and that's what led me to really want to explore how do different people address the divine? How do they find their past there? And I think it's like the tower of Babel, you know, I think God speaks many different languages and each one of these folk magics and each one of these religions is a different language God uses to find us that we can relate to, not so God can relate to us, but so we can relate to God and understand what's being said. And I just don't speak a lot of those languages. Right. That, but that's such a, a, a beautiful 
way of looking at it. And it sort of brings me back to what I started talking about, like with the tarot, you know, I, I, I think, you know, when some of the original decks, I think, you know, they tried to include all those different languages of God into the 78 cards. Especially with those major cards. Um, you yeah, know, for, the, the 22 major arcana. For the longest time, those major cards were all that there were of the tarot. And then those minor decks got added when they came out of the royalty and into day-to-day -day life. We needed an expression that was not just higher self. We needed an expression of normal day-to-day -day life. And that's where we got those four suits. Mm -hmm. And so it really is the evolution of our concepts of higher self and mundane life all rolled into 78 little keys there. It's so fascinating. It is amazing. Well, this has been a great interview. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it very much. And um, so before we uh, wrap up, where can my listeners find you? Crossroadsoccult.com. There is a KatrinaRasbold.com. That's my author site. But everything I do shows up on CrossroadsOccult.com. That's just the, um, the website for our store. Mm -hmm. And go to KatrinaRasbold.com. You can find the books. They're available through Llewellyn, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. I'm everywhere on Amazon. If you just put in Katrina Rasbold, you'll find me. That's how I found you. That's how you found me. And, uh, but Crossroads Occult is where I do the healing, the tarot readings. I also have every Thursday night, so tonight, uh, on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Crossroads Occult, I do uh, with my two girls. We have a show called uh, Witches at the Crossroads Hour. Watch. And so for an hour, we take questions about Conjure. If anybody has questions about magic or any type of divination or anything like that, but we also do free tarot and oracle card readings. Oh, that's great. Uh, Gladys is there with me. She's our medium. Producer Nelta is our apothecary gal, but she uh, also runs the show for us. And the three of us just sit around for an hour talking about conjures, conjure and doing readings every Thursday night. It's at 7 o'clock Pacific time. Oh, that's so awesome. Um, if you have a chance, just email me those links so I can include them in the notes of this episode. I will absolutely do that. Because um, and even I want to check out the Thursday night thing. So it's really cool. It's a lot of fun. And it really is. Uh, we do swear a lot. So you kind of have to get used to that. Uh, we, it's really just three witches just sitting around BSing and having fun and laughing at each other and uh, doing readings for people. It's, it's really a fun night. We have a good time. So was this Crossroads um, name come from Robert Johnson? Kind of, sort of. I actually had just released Crossroads of Conjure. And we, were, we had had a store for three years in Roseville, California, and had stopped it because the venue was kind of drying up where we were. And so we had, we had decided we were going to reopen a store. And at, this, at the time that we opened the store, I had just released Crossroads a few months before. And so we just decided to call the, road, the store Crossroads because it really is the coming together of many different magical paths. We have vendors here that are of different uh, practices than Eric and I. Mm -hmm. And 
we really just wanted to bring it all together. I mean, because I'm Bruharia and we have Wiccan rituals here and he's um, Reiki and, uh, and yoga. And it's just a convergence of so many different magical paths that we, we got a Viking dude. I mean, all kinds of paths. And this was the crossroads where they all met. So, but my logo has got Robert Johnson at the crossroads. <laughs> I've got to confess that one. That's awesome. I'm a huge blues fan. All right. Yeah. You sit there for three nights, you'll learn to play. Yeah. <laughs> Come to Crossroads for three nights, you'll eventually get locked out at eight o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it's great that you include all different traditions and, and, and just sort of recognize that they can all sort of meet at the Crossroads. It's you cool. know, and historically, almost every spiritual path has some significance to crossroads. It's the crossroads is always the sacred place, and it's every place at once and no place. So it just seemed perfect. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on today and taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for having me on, Gary. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.